Well, welcome back to the Free Kit Martin Podcast. My name is Crystal McKenzie, and today I'm with Stacy Stone. Of course, Stacy used to be married to Kit. They were married for over a decade, had three children together. Those are all beautiful adults now, and that makes you the one and only ex-wife with the whole bigamy situation with Joan. Oh, we'll get to it. Don't worry. Also, we have Emilio Corsetti today. Emilio wrote the book, I Will Ruin You, The Twisted Truth Behind the Kit Martin Murder Trial, which is due out March 26th. And we appreciate you being here today, Emilio. First things first, a trigger warning. We talk about a lot of stuff in this podcast, like domestic violence, wrongful convictions, alleged perjury, and bigamy. Christian Kit Martin is a household name, and he's a military hero, now serving life sentence for a triple homicide he did not commit. His three neighbors across the street, that's who he's accused of killing. However, he has three people as alibis. Laura, his fiancée at the time, and her two children who were at home with him during the time of the murders. Christian Kit Martin happened to be in the middle of a divorce where his ex, Joan Harmon, vowed to ruin his military career and him for that matter, but was protected all the way through this trial and never once had to step foot inside the courtroom and never had to even plead the fifth in front of the jury. This conversation continues on all major social media platforms, by the way, the free Kit Martin podcast. And I know Stacy and I are both thrilled to have you back. Emilio Corsetti, who wrote, I will ruin you. The twisted truth behind the Kit Martin murder trial, which is due out on March 26th. Thank you again, Emilio. Gosh, we appreciate you being here today. Who did you run into the other day when you were there? James Matlock. Can we have that conversation with you? Sure. Okay. So I had gone back to Pembroke specifically to film some video yeah. for a book trip. And uh, one of the um, things I wanted to do in the book trailers, I wanted to get a drone video of the water tower in Pembroke as a way of identifying where location, right? Sure. So I, I drove up to the, uh, the water tower, unpacked my drone, and a gentleman and his dog uh, drives up. And I'm sure they were wondering what I was doing. So I, I explained to them what my, my plan was. And they said, yeah, no problem, go ahead. And uh, so I took the drone up and I, I shot my video and I was showing him the video after I had shot it. And he he stops and he goes, what's this for? And I said, well, I said, are you familiar with the murder that took place here in, in 2015? And he says, do you know who I am? And I looked at him and he, he did look familiar, but I couldn't place the name right away. And he says, I'm James Matlock. So right off the bat, I recognized him as soon as he said that, James Matlock. And so we got into a discussion about his participation in the trial. And uh, he had some interesting things to say. Mm, I'll bet he did. Now, that's an interesting character. Now, Stacy, why don't you interject here? Does Kit even know who that is? Does he know? No, he said that he doesn't ever even. He said until he walked in that courtroom that day, he doesn't ever remember ever seeing him. Or meeting him ever in Pembroke. Yes. Okay. Now, tell us what happened, because I'm dying to know what happened, and you kind of left us on that note last time we had John there, Emilio, so. Well, as you know, if, if you listen to the trial, James Matlock didn't come forward until four months before the start of the trial. Right. Right. And when he did come forward, he didn't identify Kit. 
he had basically said, as I recall, I have to go back and, and, and play the, this testimony, but as I recall, he testified that it was the Saturday before the murders and that he was on a, uh, a, a motorcycle or something similar to that, a tripod or something like that. He was looking for a part off of a combine that, that he had lost. And he saw somebody come out of the wood, the wood, uh, the tree line. Can you please state your full name? James Christopher Matlock. Okay. And Mr. Matlock, where do you live? Uh, Pembroke, Kentucky. Okay. How long have you lived in Pembroke? All my life. All your life. Okay. Um, I want to talk about um, November 2015. Um, and Your Honor, may I approach the witness? Yes, sir. <clears throat> And so I want to talk to you about, um, there was an incident in Pembroke um, of a burning car. Do you remember that? Yes. Okay. And there were some murders. Do you remember the burning cars and murders in Pembroke? Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. And I want to talk about um, a couple days before that. Do you remember being out on that farm, on that property? Yes. Okay. And do you remember what day? On a Saturday? Yes. The Saturday before the, the burning cars? Yes. Okay. Farm. So you were farming on that day? Yes. Okay. And do you remember what time of day that was? Uh, a little bit after 1 p.m.? Yes. Okay. Now, while you were out there on that field um, the Saturday before the burning cars were found, did you see anybody out there? Yes. Okay. And did you see the defendant out there? Yes. And how do you know the defendant? Do you know the defendant? Yes. Okay. I met him. I don't really know him. I met him through the guy on the farm I worked at. Okay. And, and my house is behind his. So you live near sir? him? Yes, sir. Yes. Okay. And that's the person that you saw out, of, out there? Yes. The defendant? Yes. Okay. And, and when you saw him, when you saw the defendant out there, did you talk to him? No, sir. No, sir. Did, you, did he see you? I don't know. Let me say, I was on the three-wheeler. I come around. I just seen him when he came out. He was turning, going back down toward the wood line. Okay. No further questions. So that was the testimony, and then he had identified that person as Kit. But when he first uh, contacted the police, he said he saw somebody in a yellow shirt and blue jeans, and he, he didn't identify Kit. Of course, by the time he got to the trial, he identified him as, as Kit Martin. So I was interested in, in some of the discrepancies because at the at the trial, the defense uh, put on a phone expert that that tried to disprove that by saying that on the Saturday before the murders, Kit was on his phone at the time that supposedly James Matlock had saw him. Isn't it true that you actually only came forward with this statement uh, a little while ago? Well, the only reason I came forward because somebody contacted me. I never talked about it. I didn't know if he killed people or not. All I know, I've seen him a couple days before. 
my, my question to you was, these murders happened back in 2015, and am I correct that this year, in 2021, a few months ago, that was the first time you talked to anybody about this? Maybe. I only told one person that I seen somebody back here, and that was Bubba. You talked to the police? I talked to the police after somebody he contacted me. I don't know how I got to be here. You don't know how you got to be here? No. But you talked to the police in March of 2021. Does that sound right? Yes, sir. And when you talked to the police in March of 2021, you actually said, that you saw a guy. Yes. You didn't know the name? I didn't know his name. Right. You said it was a guy with a bright yellow shirt. Yellow shirt, blue jean. And you say that you didn't know how you ended up here because you didn't tell anybody before. Huh? You did tell the police that you didn't particularly like Mr. Martin. I did what? You told the police that you didn't like Mr. Martin. I didn't like him. That you had some dispute with him, I didn't about, like him. about a car? No, I seen him back on my place one time looking at a car. But that's got nothing to do with me liking him. I met him through Bubba. He come to the farm, the man that raised me did a bunch of work around his house. I took stuff up there to him. I never seen him up at his house. I just took stuff to Bubba at his house. So you've seen him according to, I'm just trying to make sure I got this right, walking his dog back by your property? Is that right? Yes. And now, six years later, you got new information, right? No, I've got the same information I had then. I know what he looked like, I knew who he was. I was close enough to see him. I wasn't even 50 feet from him. I come around the curb. Right, you were by yourself though. Yes, right? yes. Totally by yourself. Uh, and your testimony is, you didn't bother to tell anybody for six years? No. Because when it happened, I couldn't say if he killed some people or not. I, mean, I seen him walking in the wood. And you didn't bother to tell anybody until evidently... Your Honor, asked and answered. So, you agree that you first spoke to the police in March yes. 2021? Yes. Bubba Glass is a landowner in Hopkins County, excuse Pembroke. me, Hopkins County, around Hopkinsville, Christian Pembroke. in Pembroke specifically. He owns a lot of stuff, right? Your Honor, objection relevance? Sustained. Matter of fact, Bubba don't own nothing no more. He's retired. His son runs the farm, that's who I work for. Bubba raised me from the time I was nine years old up until now. 
the folks in Pembroke are small town, right? Yes, sir. And they're pretty close. Yes, sir. I have no further questions. So right off the bat, the, the conversation between he and I and another gentleman started to go south. And it, it was accusatory uh, that I was trying to, to call him a liar. Oh, my. But basically what I was trying to do was trying to, to get to the, to the facts of, of what happened, right? And so one of the interesting things I've learned about this, this whole incident is that for his reason for coming forward, all right, he didn't voluntarily come forward with this information. Oh. What happened, what, what happened was a gentleman by the name of Bubba Glass, who was well-known in that, that area, I guess he had had a conversation with James Matlock because they're very close. And James had mentioned to him about seeing this person. Uh, and I, I should point out that the tree line I'm talking about is on the opposite side of where the burned vehicle was, was located. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I should, so I guess they had this discussion in this bubble glass is the one who called the police to tell the, the investigators about what James Matlock supposedly saw. Oh, dear. So, so obviously, I wanted to get down to the bottom of this. And, and there were a bunch of accusations that James Matlock made uh, during that conversation that ha have been unverified. One claim that he made was that Kit and John Homick, the owner of the land, knew each other. Uh, and that was news to me. And I haven't been able to verify that one way or another. I probably should ask Kit. I need to ask Kit about that. But he, he said that it wasn't unusual for Kit to do target practicing on John Homick's uh, farm. Well, actually, but, Kit told me that he didn't even know where Rosetown Road is. That's what I, I heard him say that. I'm pretty sure I heard him say that on the stand. And yeah. I have been to Pembroke. Uh, before and we actually had one of I can't remember it was so many years ago just as I wanted to reiterate you said James Matlock came forward what a few months but actually wasn't it years after Chris was arrested four months before the trial but years after the murders had happened that was a major witness you know I mean so, but here's a couple other things though so we started getting into some of the, what, what he had testified one claim that he made was that well, he was upset that, that they brought up his, his criminal record. He said because it, it damaged his reputation in the, in the local community. And then he also said that uh, the day after he testified, he got a threatening phone call. And it, it was basically threatening him for, for testifying, which he blamed on Kit. Well, I... You know, I told him, I said, look, Kit was in jail. I mean, so he, he obviously <laughs> recorded couldn't. recorded conversation. Wasn't him. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he couldn't have, have uh, uh, been the one who threatened you. And, and then he said that um, within a day of him, or a day or two of him testifying, somebody shot his dog. And that was another thing that really upset him. And he, he felt that Kit was behind that as well. And once again, I told him, I said, look, the guy was in jail. Right? He said, well, it was somebody connected to him. But 
Oh, my. You know, that happened a lot in this trial. It's a small town, and a lot of that, it was just a lot of misinterpretation and a lot of small-town gossip gone wild, it seems. Yeah, but there were some other details that that made his whole story um, questionable, all right? So at the trial, I believe they, they said that he had saw this person on Saturday before the murders. Well, when I talked to him, he said, and it wasn't Saturday, it was three days before the murder. But here's the most important thing about this whole episode in his testimony, all right? For you to believe that he saw Kit at a site close to where the uh, the bodies of Pam Phillips and Ed Dandrew were found in a burned car, you would have to assume that Kit somehow was able to foresee into the future that he was going to have to kill two more people, and then he was going to have to burn a car, a vehicle somewhere, and it just happened to be this this farm field. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't make any sense at all. Zero. Well, well I, you know, Emilio, what I've noticed in the trial, I'm not sure why it wasn't called out, but I noticed that one part in the in the trial, you know, Barbara Whaley's making the statement that this military precision, but he he was surprised. He got surprised because Pam and Ed, they showed up and then, he, okay, so here we are saying he was surprised and that wasn't in his plans, but here we are over here getting James Matlock to testify that the reason he was out is he was scoping out the land because he planned to kill them. Right. So those two stories, even in the trial, were total opposite versions. It makes no sense whatsoever. Exactly. I mean, and it was a stupid argument to make from the prosecution to begin with because you can't be scoping out a site for uh, murders that you have no, you know, perceived notion that it's going to happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it didn't make any sense. But um, I know from comments from people who watched the trial that uh, James Matlock, uh, his testimony was was taken uh, very seriously Absolutely. As, as accusing him of making Kit appear guilty. Right. And did I hear you just say earlier in this conversation that he was upset because his criminal record was, it was brought up? That is a public record. And from what I can tell, isn't there like over 30 different criminal charges on this man? You know, he talked about that a little bit. He said it. He said all, all his, his criminal record had to do with was um, fighting in a DUI and, and some other minor things. But he was upset that they brought it up because it, it kind of yeah. damaged his reputation in the, uh, in the mm-hmm. local area. By the end of the uh, by the end of the conversation, I had calmed things down because he was really upset about the whole thing. But when I when I started pointing out some of the discrepancies in the whole prosecution story, kind of started to come around, and he, he got interested in wanting to know more. So um, I I was able to turn the conversation around, but it started off on a bad note. Hey, Does he know what perjury is? I didn't get into the fact that his initial con- uh, contact with the police. He didn't identify Kit. And and where did that transition between not identifying him to a positively identifying yeah. happen? Exactly. Right? But regardless, uh, the whole story is just shaky. The fact that he didn't even volunteer to come forward, it was somebody else who volunteered him yeah. with the information. Um, the whole thing. And then the fact that none of it makes any sense because you, you can't tie 
even if he was there, you can't tie that to the crime. Precisely. Hey, you would be the one, I'm sorry, just a real quick question because it's on my mind. You would be the one to ask this because I've never heard of a 911 call for that burning car. It's in the book. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you remember it, at at uh, 1.50 a.m., um, Earl Jett's dog started barking. Yes. All right. And it woke him and his wife up. So his wife gets up and she uses the restroom. She goes back to, to bed. And then Earl Jett gets up. And so now it's about um, 2.10 or 2.05 or 2 a.m. He uses the restroom and he looks out the window and the, and the, the bathroom happened to have a window that looked out at the same direction where the car was on fire. Okay. Yes. And he saw flames. He didn't, he didn't realize what was on. He just saw the flames. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, John, John what is it? John Homick. I don't know if his first name is John. I think it is. But, but anyways, he had a burn pile and, and Earl Jett testified that he thought maybe his, you know, it was early in the morning. He had just gotten up and maybe his directions were off a little bit. But anyways, he went, he went back to bed. And then interesting, interestingly enough, shortly after that, at around 2.13 a.m., 2.15 a.m., they both, Earl Jett and John Homick, both heard two loud bangs. All right. Okay. And one of them called it, you know it, when a shotgun goes off outside your window. That's what Mr. Homick said. That's exactly what he testified to. However, what the two loud bangs were most likely were the airbags exploding in the car from the heat. Yeah. Right. So the next morning, John Homer gets up and he's going into town. I think it was around eight in the morning. And he was driving by the the Rose Town Road. He was on Rose Town Road going into town. And he saw, he still saw the smoke in the, the, he didn't, actually, he didn't identify it. He just saw smoke coming from something. And he went down the road. He drove down a little bit, a little bit, and he saw that it was a vehicle. It was still smoldering. So he went back to John Homick's uh, place. Woke John Homick up, who was living in a barn for some reason. Home sweet home, he called it. So he's in a barn, and they both get up and they look and they see the smoke coming from the car, and then they call nine one one. So let me ask you a question: Do we know who's who owns this property? John Homick. I'm going to so be right John back. Homick's- Okay. I gotta get a glass of water. Okay, yeah, All go right. ahead. Ooh, he's got shorts on. We want to wear shorts. We want short weather. Yeah, oh, we do. I've threatened people that walk, walk in. Shorts. Yes, people walk in in shorts here, you know, at 60 <laughs> degrees. And it's like, no, and come like, on. We're, we're okay. sweatshirts and we're jealous. So. Yeah. Uh, so my question being, and I want to make sure I have this clear. John Homick owns the, owns the property. And Earl Jett had got up. He saw the flames. John Honick didn't see them till that morning around 8. Is that correct? Yeah, somewhere between 8 and 9. Okay. So somebody sees the flames and they just go back to bed? No, 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 no. See, they, they saw flames. Okay. okay. But John Honick has a burn pile. And he oh, often okay. burns things that's at, right. at night. I see. Okay. So that's what... Did you interview any of those guys, the owners, while you were there? John Homick or Earl Jett? No, I didn't. I did not. Oh, you did not. Okay. But I did go back to the scene. I, I did go back to Rosetown Road um, 
into, into the exact spot where the car was located. And one thing I noticed, um, I was very curious about, you know, I'm, I'm 99% sure that there were two vehicles on that road, right? So the first vehicle had the two bodies in it. And there was a turn in the road. And the, it was dark. It's, it's you know, 1.30 a.m. And the first car got stuck in the mud. Well, I drove down that road myself. And, and it, was, it was in November as well. So it was this, around the same time period, right? So I do remember the road was pretty narrow, and there's a farm field on the left. And then there's a, a, like a grassy low area to the right that, that's not farmed. But when I drove down the road, it was so narrow that I, ha- I kind of had to do a, it was, it was difficult to turn around and go back to Rosetown Road, mm-hmm. right? Let's put it that way. So I, I probably had to go through the cornfield just a little bit in order to back up and, and get in there. So I'm thinking to myself, at 2 a.m., all you have is the light, the headlights of a car. So the first car gets stuck in the mud. Right. It had been right? raining really badly on the 18th. Yeah, in the morning. Okay. But by the evening, it had stopped. All right. But if, if you saw the pictures, you can see that there was still water um, that had gathered in this low area where the, where the car got stuck in the mud. All right. There was quite a bit of water, actually. So I, in my mind, I was thinking they had talked about they had saw some tire tracks and then they decided that they were going to go back and, and look at the tires uh, on John Homick's vehicle because John Homick said he was down there the day, the day before. And they, they said they matched the tire tracks that they saw uh, at, the, at the site of the burnt car with his, his automobile. And then they left it at that. Okay. Right? Yeah. But when I went, when I went down, I, you know, and I was physically in that location, I realized how tight it was, how tight it would be to turn around a vehicle. All right. But when I was looking at, and then you can go back and if you have the evidence photos, if you look at the evidence photos, there's very clearly another set of tire tracks to the right of where the car got stuck. I wondered. Wow. And I had no clue if they did anything investigating that other second uh, second set of tire tracks. You know they did not. Almost right to where the mud and the water started. I mean, I want to know what kind of tires, though, they are. They, right. they could have known exactly what kind of tire that was in that mud. But you can clearly see a, 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 another set of tire tracks in the, in the uh, evidence of it, uh, photos. And so do they you, look like big tires, like maybe a truck, or do they look just like normal? Can you tell? Um, no, you, you couldn't tell. Um, yeah. Okay. okay. You know, I wanted to ask about Rosetown Road. When I went doing my little investigation, how far down, I never could figure out where the actual site was. Um, How far down Rosetown Road did this happen? Do you remember about how many miles down the road it was? There's a main main street that goes through Pembroke. And you go on down and you turn into Rosetown Road. How far down Rosetown Road was this? I can't can't give you a distance. All I know is that I went past it. initially because I couldn't find it, but it's right after a curve in the road. Yeah. But I'm going to show you a, a picture here. Um, I know this is not, this is a podcast, but okay. So I'm going to share my screen now. Can you see that picture there? Oh yeah. Yes. 
All right, so you look off to, so you see the car stuck in the mud there. And you yes. look off to the right there. Oh, Is my that goodness. There's definitely tracks. Yeah, so you can see the the, the tracks of the, the, the first car that got stuck. Yes. Right? And, and you can see where he, he dug into the, into the dirt, and then he just couldn't get, get get going again. But there's clearly there's tire track tire tracks in the mud behind the car, but there's no way they could have um, matched tire tracks that you see off to the right because it's filled with water. That's right, Emilio. Do you suppose they were on their way to the burn pile with the car and then just got stuck? Is that your theory? I, I do not have a theory on that. That That is one possibility. Uh, the other possibility is, okay, so they're, they're driving around at 2 a.m. and there's two dead bodies in the vehicle. They obviously don't want to get stopped by the police, all right? They want to, they want to put this car on fire. So it's, it's also possible that all they were doing was looking for a place, an open field where they can set this car on fire. And, and as soon as possible. You know, it's like a lake around it. I can't, you know, I've not ever seen this close up other than in the trial. And it looks a little, just a big fuzz up on the screen. You can't really see it. And they never showed a very cool, like a good close up of this. This is the first time I've seen that picture. And it's like a lake all around that car. No wonder they got stuck. Yeah, exactly. Wow. You know, I want to go back just a moment to, um, I don't mean to backtrack so much, but it was a question about James Matlock. That was his name, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he was talking to you, and he said he had shared this information with, uh, who did you say? Uh, Mr. Somebody? Bubba Glass. Bubba Glass. Okay. And um, so Bubba Glass heard his story, said he saw somebody, and he suggested he, he needed to testify. Is that right so far? Well, no. Um the way James Matlock explained it to me it was Bubba Glass called the detective and say, I know somebody who saw something. Oh, okay. Okay. That's yeah. interesting. Well, just okay. while we've been here on this podcast, I looked him up. He actually ran for like a, you know, like a city council at one time there in, in um, Hopkinsville. So he's, a, he's okay. known in Christian County, it would seem, you know, you know the, the strange thing about that is when I first encountered uh, James Matlock, um, he had a dog with him, so I mean, and uh, but he said he lived there. He lived on site where that water tower was. Which what? I, I got the impression that you know this was like a a, a county owned property, okay. and that he he was in charge of maintaining that property. That okay. that was what I got. All right. Okay. Well, I want to interject here. The reason I wanted to go back to that. Is because if I have read correctly, the number one reason for wrongful convictions is misidentification. So, you know, maybe the story fit, maybe he just thought he saw this, or there could be other scenarios for him testifying too. It's just, you know, I don't know about you guys, but, um, and gal, guy and gal, um, but it, I would be hard pressed to think about four years ago today or you know what did i see where was i at what was i doing i mean sometimes it's hard to remember last month what i was doing but to say on a specific date i saw a specific person on a specific road at such and such time i'm sorry but i just don't buy that i don't believe it 
Yeah, unfortunately, his, his testimony, as contradictory as it is, as it was, um, was very detrimental to the kid's case. You know, as Crystal mentioned, everything was so chaotic in the trial. It was so back and forth and hard to follow and hard to understand because there's so many moving pieces. But at the same time, if anybody had really sat and listened to that, as I've stated before, there was contradictions on the theory. I mean, was he out scoping this land or did these people come home by surprise? It can't be both. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we don't know that, uh, first of all, and I've heard it over and over from several family members, no one has ever seen, um, I mean, this is kind of minute, but no one's ever seen Kit in a yellow shirt. I mean, that was cause that's not like a color shirt that he would ever wear. So I thought that was an interesting little that's tidbit. Interesting, yeah. I thought that was an interesting little tidbit. Yeah. Um, well, I just can't remember it. I mean, I've known him for th over 30 years. That doesn't mean he's never had a yellow shirt on. I just don't remember that to be right a color that he wore a lot. So that was weird. But I wanted to also interject this. Me and my husband at the time went to the house to help. And I can't remember again. It's been so long ago um, exactly when it was. But we went. One of our kids' children were there. And the dog had got away or got loose. And we drove there an hour and a half, two hours away, to try to help find this dog. We didn't even go in the direction of Rosetown Road. The only reason I know where Rosetown Road is is I went and checked it out after the trial to see what I could maybe figure out. But we went the other direction, and there's a railroad track, and we went around by that and in behind the house. And that way, and interesting enough, I had a contact, I'm not going to mention the name right now, but um, because I didn't ask her if I could, but I had a contact recently who remembers Kit and his family riding bicycles and had dogs and things. It was in a different direction from Rosetown Road. To me, from Kit's house on South Main Street, you would have had to go through the middle of town by the Dollar General store and all that to even get to Rosetown Road. Mm -hmm. So that's not sensible to me. Okay, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today, of course, the book comes out on March 26th. It's I Will Ruin You, the twisted truth behind the Kit Martin trial. And um, you will notice on all of our social media, we're starting to really put this out there because I think it's really going to simplify the story. Don't you, Stacey? I really do. I mean, Emilio has done so much research and spent so much time and we really appreciate it. Yeah. It's just very interesting because once he does the research, it's actually a lot more simple than, you know, than we've made it. Right. Know? Absolutely. It seemed to and, be and so. And I, I do appreciate the shout outs for the, for the book. Oh, I are you kidding? It. You deserve that. And, uh, but you know what Emilio did and Stacy's saying it here, basically he took all of just the evidence in the trial and then made up his mind as to whether or not Kit Martin had anything to do with this. And what's your answer to that, Emilio? I haven't seen any evidence that points to his guilt. In fact, there's more evidence that points away from his guilt and towards another individual. Yeah. Okay. And you have well, done... Well, Emilio, I can tell you that we would like to um, take you on a book signing tour. Oh, yeah. Let so. us help sell you. <laughs> he's looking... He's actually thinking about it, Stacey. <laughs> well, at, at the end of this... At the end of this segment, I'll, I'll share some information with you. Okay. And... Um, 
We're going to have to pick this up next time. Emilio Corsetti, we cannot wait to read that book. Oh, I'm so excited. It's March 26, hitting the shelves all over the world. And um, is there a way that people can uh, order their copy ahead of time? Yes, there is. You can go on Amazon right now and pre-order. Okay, great. And type in, I will run you the twisted truth of the Kit Martin child. And you will see a pre-order link. All right. The other thing is, the publisher has reduced the price to three dollars, two ninety-nine, and because they want to drive interest in the book and get early reviews before the book is is released. Oh man, my phone right. is open right now. I'm going. Thank okay. you, Emilio Corsetti. You are one of the heroes of, of this year story. We thank you so much for everything that you've done for the cause. And again, it's a called I Will Ruin You, the twisted truth behind the Kit Martin murder trial. Thanks again, Emilio. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Emilio, for everything that you've done. We really, really appreciate you. And thank you, listeners. <laughs>